We are going to be continuing in Luke chapter 7. Tonight, we're going to pick up at 7 verse 24. We're going to finish the chapter tonight. And if you were with us in weeks prior, you know that what we've been seeing is Jesus has gone about. He's taught the the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. He taught his disciples what it was to be citizens of his kingdom. And going into chapter 7, we saw the importance of the need for faith, faith in Jesus Christ, to believe his word and to believe upon his atoning work for life that is more abundant than anything we'll ever know in any other place. It's the only place in which we can find eternal life. It's in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God the Father except through him. And see, tonight, we're going to be continuing that idea of the need of faith, the importance to have faith in Jesus Christ. And some would say, isn't that every passage of the Bible? Well, in some, to some level, yes, that's true. But man, it's the focus tonight. Because we're going to see, if we've been longing for rest, if we've been longing for peace, if we've been longing for that fulfillment of life that we were created for, it's all found in Jesus Christ. Amen? There's nowhere else we're going to find this. And we're going to see, as we pick up now, we're going to see the commendation of John the Baptist, the condemnation of those that do not believe, and the conversion of those who do put their faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're with me, we're going to be at Luke chapter 7, verse 24, and we'll jump into it right now. It says, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. And so right off the bat, we're getting some commendation from Jesus towards John the Baptist. It's important to remember that when we left off last week, we left off at, at verse 23, where we saw that John the Baptist, it really from 18 through 23, he had sent his disciples to Jesus. And the inquiry was, Jesus, are you the one we are waiting for? Are you the Messiah that we should be waiting upon? And see, it wasn't that John the Baptist did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It was more about, Jesus, none of this is making sense. The messianic kingdom that we expected you to set up to overthrow Rome, that's not happening. And John the Baptist, man, of all people, he's saying, I'm the forerunner, the forerunner of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and I'm sitting in Roman captivity in prison. When you think about that and how wild that is, I mean, there was a messianic passage in Isaiah 42, 7. It said that the, the Messiah would open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And so you can imagine John was sitting there thinking, this is not what I expected for my ministry. This is not what I expected on the calling that was placed on my life by, by the Lord presented by Gabriel in Luke chapter one to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. And that John walked in for a full year before his arrest. But it's pretty wild because his whole ministry, again, it lasted one year. Not a lot of people would feel like they had a very successful ministry if all it was was one year of serving the Lord in the sense of, of official ministry. But that's what John the Baptist was called to. Jesus himself served three and a half years of true ministry in the way that we would form it, right? Sometimes our, our, what we might imagine being like an epic ministry thing is different than what the Lord has for us. But I'll tell you, when we serve his way, it is the greatest thing. The Lord's will is always the best plan for our life. But for John to sit in prison while all that was happening, he was confused. The doubt started to enter and to say, man, what am I doing here? If I'm doing everything right, why am I in prison? And so he sent his disciples over to Jesus. And I love it because Jesus takes the opportunity to commend John the Baptist here. He commends him for his commitment to the ministry that he received in the Lord. And see, I love it because what Jesus is doing is he's stressing how faithful John was. Because there's some level where you have to figure in the verses prior when they came and asked Jesus, about the timing of his ministry and the timing of the kingdom. He out loud told those guys to go back and tell John the Baptist what's been going on. So it's, it seems that people in their minds started to think, well, wait a minute. 
if John the Baptist is being corrected by Jesus, maybe John the Baptist isn't that sound of a teacher or a leader. This is where Jesus wants to step in. And he's basically saying, no, no, no. John the Baptist is, is absolutely a prophet. And he's going to go on, right? He's going to go on to say he's the greatest prophet. But in this section, he's stressing the fact that John was faithful because he did not live for the things of the world. He didn't live for people's approval. He didn't live for physical apparel or worldly luxuries. That was not his motivation or his concern. You see, John was not like a reed shaken by the wind. Like Jesus said, did you out, go out to see some reed that was being shaken by the wind? John had such powerful, strong convictions that he was firm. He was strong. He said, I am not going to be shaken by the things of this world, by, by what people think of me, right? I mean, the religious leaders in Luke chapter three, they came to see what John was preaching. He called them a brood of vipers. He called them a gang of snakes. <laughs> and he basically said, look at who sent you out here? Who warned you of the wrath that was coming? He questioned their motives. So like what pastor preacher says, I want to qualify my customers before I talk to them. Okay. I want to figure out who's here and why they're here. And if you're not here for the right reasons, get out of here. You're a bunch of snakes. Like, that's a guy that was firm in his convictions. He wanted people to come and hear the gospel for the right reason because they understood that they needed to be saved from their sins, that they needed repentance. And see, John was not in soft garments, as Jesus said. He was there in camel's hair, right? It resembled Elijah the prophet. We know that Elijah was shown to wear camel's hair in first and second kings, it's it's alluded to. And Gabriel in Luke 1.17 foretold that John the Baptist would go out in the spirit of Elijah. So it makes sense that he would then present himself like Elijah. And see, Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew's account of this section, the parallel account, he said, if you are willing to receive it, John is Elijah who is to come. So in other words, Malachi 4.5 says that Elijah would come before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So everyone was figuring, well, right before the Messiah gets here, we'll have Elijah. Well, they didn't realize there were two comings. There was Jesus coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And then, not happen yet, but it will, he'll come as the Lion of Judah, right? And he'll come and he'll deliver the Jews from all the oppression around. And that's at the end of that tribulation, right, in Revelation, but in this case, he's saying right now, before I got here the first time, John the Baptist, if you're willing to receive it, John is here in the spirit of Elijah. And so we have that on Jesus is stamping the ministry of John saying, hey, he's not some guy that's out here trying to win friends. He's not some guy that's out here just trying to get ahead in life. He's out here because he's preaching the word and he's come in the spirit of Elijah. And lastly, the fact that he lived in the wilderness, that he was eating locust and honey, you know, and now he's sitting in prison. I mean, here's a guy that lived in the outdoors. What a terrible thing, right, for John the Baptist, a guy that would be your typical like Bass Pro customer, I imagine. He's a guy that wants to be outside camping. Now he's confined into a jail cell, into Roman prison, right, because he, he offended Herod. And the fact is, the reason he's not in the king's courts is because he stood for convictions. He called Herod out. He told Herod, listen, you can't be marrying your, what was it, his brother's wife, who was also like Herod's niece. So in one move, he became his own brother-in-law and nephew somehow when he married her. Really weird, messed up thing. And John the Baptist called him out on it. And for that, he wound up in prison, right? And eventually he called him out to the point to where he got his head cut off. I mean, this guy was, was strong on this conviction. He was a guy that served the Lord faithfully and he didn't care about what people thought. He cared about what the Lord thought. And see, as he walked in the ways, John the Baptist walked in the calling for his life. Man, Jesus took note. Jesus exalts John for this. He's commending him here. It reminds me of 1 Peter uh, 5 verse 6. It says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And you see John the Baptist, he was firm in his convictions. He was firm in his teaching, but he was humble in the sense that he didn't chase the things of this world. He served the calling of the Lord upon his life. He was obedient to that. And man, that uncompromising obedience and faith in Jesus and the ministry that was given to him by the Lord, he was eventually exalted in the Lord's eyes. And I don't know about you guys, but that's what I want for my life. 
Forget the king exalting me. Forget the people and the powerful people caring about what we're doing. What does it look like in Jesus's eyes? Is Jesus proud of what we're doing tonight for him? Are we serving the ministry that he has placed upon our life? And so in verse 27 to 28, Jesus confirms again that he's not just a prophet, but that he's a true prophet. Look what he says here. He says, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So in this case, what he's saying is, look at John's not only a prophet, but he's the greatest prophet that we have ever known in history. <laughs> that's a big statement, right? I think that's so cool because I don't know about you guys, but I think about Elijah. Elijah never, I mean, I'm sorry, John the Baptist, I'm saying Elijah, he went in the spirit of Elijah. John the Baptist never performed a, a miracle anywhere in scripture that we know of. All he did was faithfully teach the word of God. He proclaimed what was given to him by the Lord. And Jesus says, that's the greatest prophet that's ever been born. This is so cool to me. I think about Romans 10, 17. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Nehemiah 8, 8 says that they read the word of God distinctly from the law and they gave the sense and helped the people to understand the reading. These are the methods of why we do, we do Bible studies this way. We believe that we don't need some powerful, magical scene to happen. We can just open the word of God and expect that the Lord is going to speak to us through the power of his spirit, through his word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Right? Hebrews 4.12 tells us that. And so John just taught the word faithfully. Jesus says, man, he's the greatest prophet, and here's why. He quotes Malachi 3.1 which says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So what Jesus is saying is that he's come here to prepare the way for Jesus himself, the messenger of the covenant, the new covenant, Jesus, right? So John the Baptist went before as that forerunner and he's fulfilling Isaiah 40 verse three which says that he's the voice crying in the wilderness. He's going out and he's crying out that the Lord is here, that the Messiah is here. And see, not only was he great because he was a forerunner, the forerunner to Jesus, the Messiah, but I'll tell you what's also really cool about John the Baptist is that he is the last prophet of the old covenant. There's no... You know, Jesus and John are, are contemporaries in that. There's no other prophet until after the, after the cross, after the resurrection. He's the one that ushers in Jesus coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And so in that sense, he was the one that said, hey, everyone, the new covenant is coming in Jesus. No other prophet got to experience that with his own eyes to say, man, this is the one who's going to take away those sins. And see, it's funny because as we read that, if you look at verse 28, it says, for I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is a pretty cool statement, right? Because at first it's kind of confusing because you're like, wait, didn't Jesus just say that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet, right? Well, now he says, but he's, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that's talking about like me. It's talking about you, my fellow believer. Like if we're the least in the kingdom of God, we're greater than John the Baptist. That's a weird statement. But here's the deal. Like we said, John the Baptist ushered in the fact that Jesus was there. He proclaimed that. He fulfilled uh, what was a Malachi 3.1, right? He fulfilled that. And he fulfilled Isaiah 40 verse 3. But in this case, you and I, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we have actually experienced the taking away of our sins because John the Baptist, although he proclaimed that Jesus was the one that would do so, he was martyred before Jesus ever went to the cross or resurrected. So he was the last prophet before the work upon the cross. But for us, we actually have that sonship and adoption as, as sons and daughters in Christ. Not that John the Baptist doesn't have that now, 
But the fact that we have fully known that we have entrance into the kingdom and it's like, man, this is the coolest thing ever. So even the least, as long as we get in the kingdom, man, that's what this is all about. That's what John always proclaimed this was to be about. So if we take hold of salvation, man, we, the Lord says, look at this is greatness. This is what needs to happen. Faith in Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus, that which John proclaimed would happen. We've seen it and we've experienced it. Amen. And so in this section, it also reminds me of Hebrews 8, 6. It says, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So in other words, although John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was coming to, to, to take away the sins of the world, he also ushered in that new covenant that means that Jesus did all of the work. All of the sacrifice is done. He's the perfect, best, and better covenant has been entered because of the work of Jesus. And when we think about that, man, it's so awesome that we can just take hold of that today. What a blessing for us. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Romans 10, 9 tells us that. But you see, not everyone will believe. Not everyone will accept. Look at verse 29 through 30. We get two different responses to Jesus's testimony of who John the Baptist is. It says, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. That's a good thing, right? But the Pharisees and lawyers they rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what that says here is that there was a group of people that believed Jesus's commendation of John the Baptist. The ones that believed that John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah and that Jesus was then therefore the Messiah were those that were baptized into John's baptism. And so if you were baptized into John's baptism, it meant that you understood that you needed to be cleansed of your sin. You understood that you needed to be washed, to be purified. And that's what that water baptism represented prior to the cross and resurrection. It didn't equate to the resurrection like we know now because Jesus hadn't died and resurrected yet. It was identifying yourself saying, man, I am, I am dirty, I am filthy, and I need to be cleansed. And see, it's, it's interesting because the Jews would use a water baptism for a Gentile that wanted to be converted into Judaism. Right. So it was like, oh, this is for Gentiles. But to tell the Jews, as John the Baptist did, said, no, you need to be washed, too, because you have sins in your life that you need to be cleansed. from." So the group that said, yeah, we participate in that baptism. They're saying, yeah, no, Jesus is right here. What he's saying is true about John the Baptist, because we've lived it and we've experienced it. And see, the other group, though, they don't have that broken, contrite spirit, that broken heart. Right. They're in their pride, the Pharisees and the other group that's listed there. What was it? The, the lawyers, right? The people that specialized in knowing everything about the law, right? They were the experts that understood the word, so to speak. And they said, well, no, we aren't going to have any part of this baptism. And really what this came down to was they rejected John's lifestyle. They rejected John's message, his baptism, and in turn, that means they rejected Jesus's validation of John's ministry. They said, no, we're not going to take your word on this either, Jesus. And so what's that saying is they don't believe upon Jesus. They didn't believe John. They're not believing on him. They're just in total unbelief. And it's so sad. It just reminds me of Luke 5, 31 to 32. It says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And see, the theme verse of this whole gospel, of Gospel of Luke, is verse nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 10. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And you see, in both those verses, Luke 5, 31, 32, and Luke 19, 10, Jesus is saying, man, I came for the lost. But if you don't believe you're lost, if you believe that you're well and don't need a physician, you're going to be in big trouble because I've come here to save the lost. And if you don't identify yourself as lost, you cannot be saved. You're going to believe in your own sufficiency to be saved. And man, woe to those that believe that they have everything in themselves to be saved, that they have righteousness before God because of their heritage, because of who their forefathers were, because of how much they studied the Bible. He says, not at all. That's not what this is about. It's about understanding that you need to be saved from your sin. 
And if you are baptized into that, at that time, that would be proclaiming, Lord, we believe your word. See, today, baptism, water baptism, is just a public profession and proclamation that we've been buried with Christ and resurrected in him, right? That's that new life. It speaks of John 3, 3, when Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so now baptism is a purely outward profession of that. The inward is when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we believe upon Jesus Christ. We can do that right now. You can do that today if you haven't believed upon Jesus Christ. But those that don't believe upon Jesus and they want no part of it, they're never going to receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit and they're not going to be brought in to eternal life with Jesus. And it breaks my heart to even imagine because I was once there. At the end of 2008, I gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and I received the gift of the Holy Spirit as Peter talks about in Acts 2, 38 and 39. I received that for guidance that the the Holy Spirit leads us into righteousness and convicts us of sin, right? Leads us into all truth. And as we grow in the spirit, we we become refined and sanctified in the Lord Jesus. we're We're made to look more like him with every moment. But you see, if you don't identify yourself as needing the Holy Spirit, as needing Jesus's atoning work upon the cross, man, you... There's no other option. There's only one other place and it's prepared for the devil and his angels. It's hell. It's a literal hell. Matthew 25, 41 talks about it. Matthew 25, 46 talks about it, right? Jesus says, depart from me for I do not know you, you cursed. If you do not know him, today is the day to believe upon him. But you see, there's those there that don't believe. And now we're going to see that condemnation that comes with that. If we don't put our faith in Jesus Christ, look at verse 31, 32. It says, And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. So I'll be honest, that's kind of a a weird statement, but we're going to break it down a little bit. Okay. So first of all, what's happening here is Jesus giving an assessment of the people of that age of the people that are there in Jerusalem, the people that are there hearing his words. And and wherever he travels, he runs into this. People that won't believe upon him or the testimony of John the Baptist, it would turn out. And so what he says is, man, I'm going to liken you guys to children. And see, it's not in the good way. Like Matthew 18, three through four said, Jesus told his disciples, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is that they become the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, unless you're humble like a child, unless you have the childlike faith of a child, then you can enter the kingdom of God. But these guys, they don't have childlike faith and they definitely aren't humble. They're proud. So what he's saying is, no, you're like children in the bad way. You're like children who are picky. You're like children who are complaining all the time. Because you say that you want something and you never get your way. For instance, this whole breakdown of, you know, we, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. That's like, hey, we asked you to celebrate with us and you didn't dance with us. And then, hey, we mourned to you and you did not weep. In other words, you wanted to have a funeral and when we wanted to mourn with you, you did, wouldn't have it. Nothing worked for these people, whatever they requested. There was always something wrong with the messenger in their eyes and therefore they rejected the message. That's essentially what this section is saying. We'll explain it a little more here as we go on, because you see, Jesus explains the absurdity of their complaints against both John and himself. Look at verse 33 through 35. It says for John, the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man, speaking of himself, Jesus said has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. So what Jesus is saying here is he says, look at verse 33 is talking about John the Baptist. And basically they complained that John was too strict. His lifestyle was just too harsh. His message was too heavy. He's calling everyone to repentance. He's calling people brood of vipers. He didn't partake in strong drink, which Luke 115 said that would be the case. It said, for John will be great in the sight of the Lord, shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 
So what this is telling me is that John the Baptist lived perfectly according to the will for his life given to him by God. And the people said, dude, this guy's demon possessed. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been there, but if you serve the Lord, people are like, oh, he's crazy. He's lost his mind. He's possessed by a demon or something. And it's, it's just that we're following the Lord. The world doesn't understand these things, right? Hopefully it's because we're serving the Lord and not just being maniacs, right? Hopefully we're loving people in a way to where they're like, this is foreign and crazy. It's not because we're out hating people, right? But John the Baptist, he preached the, this true gospel to people. The, the gospel that the Lamb of God who was going to take away the sins of the world was there. And they rejected him. They said, we don't want any part of this. This guy's too strict. And then Jesus calls his own life before them and says, well, you guys say to me that I'm a, I'm a wine bibber. I'm a, I'm a glutton. So you tell John, you're not going to listen to his message because he's too uptight. He's too rude and harsh about the way he preaches the gospel. I've come here with a message of grace, absolute holiness and a call to repentance, but grace and love. I've been eaten with the disciples, right? You remember when he's sitting with Matthew, the tax collector and all of their friends, The Pharisees all said, why is he sitting with tax collectors and sinners? They were mad that they didn't fast enough. So now Jesus is saying, you didn't like it when I would walk around in celebration. You didn't walk while John walked around mourning. You like neither one of us. And it comes down to this. You're just looking for a reason to not accept the message. And see, I'll tell you the truth. This happens today all the time. People will say, oh, you know what? I don't like church because there's people that go to church that are bad people. Well, I don't know where else you're going to go because everywhere has bad people, by the way. Or they say, hey, you know what? Uh, the Bible, man, I just, I just don't know if I can trust it, you know? Well, I'll, I'll ask you this. What book do you trust? What book do you have that, was, that, that has this kind of synchronicity within it between all these different authors, between thousands of years in different parts of the world, and it all came together to make this message? And it's the most attacked book of all time. Yet we're here tonight studying it, and it can't, be, it can't be totally disproven. As a matter of fact, as people apply their lives to the word of God and apply the word to their life, I should say, it's replicated, and people are changed and sanctified and made more like Jesus. That's crazy. Like, there's no other book that can do this. But people have their, their, their reasons to say, no, I don't want to accept the message because I don't like the messenger. I don't like what's being brought to me. And at the end of the day, that's the enemy's way to keep people bound on their way to hell. It's the way to keep people, preventing people from actually receiving Jesus Christ and the will of God for their life. Because in this section, right, we saw that Jesus said, or Luke writes back in verse verse 30, he said the Pharisees were rejecting the will of God for them. God willed for them to be baptized, to identify that they needed saving from their sins, but Satan kept them blinded to it. And so in this case, we see that Jesus says, look, you didn't like John, you didn't like me, but here's the deal. Verse 35, he says, wisdom is justified by all her children. That statement means this. As people apply this wisdom to their life, it's going to be shown true and right and justified because the actions of their life will prove that the wisdom is true. I hope that makes sense the way I just said that. Here's essentially it. When you tell someone, hey, I'm going to try a diet. I don't know if it works yet, but I'm going to try it. You go on that diet and you start losing tons of weight and feel great and it look great. Everyone's going to say, man, that diet really works. It is justified. It is right. It is true. The same thing can be said for the Bible. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we read the word and begin to live according to what it calls us to, man, it's shown that Jesus and John were both right. That every pastor that's ever stood up and actually rightly divided the word of truth As 2 Timothy talks about, when we rightly divide the word and give it out, when we take that and apply it to our life, wisdom's justified by all the people that live by it, and it's proven to be true. And so I'll tell you tonight, again, 2008 to now, it's been 12 years, 12 plus years I've been walking with the Lord. Many of you out there, much longer. But for me, for 12 years, this isn't just a phase. This isn't just a fad. It's not a trend. I've lived it through the ups and downs, through valleys, through mountaintops, all those different experiences. This is truth. I've put my faith in it, and I'll tell you, man, there's no other way. Put your trust in Jesus Christ tonight for rest, for peace. Man, whatever it is that you're lacking tonight, I guarantee you it can be found in Jesus Christ because you were created in the image of God. And without the filling of God, the Holy Spirit, you will be empty. 
You do not know what it is to be fulfilled because you were created to be filled with the spirit. Until you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you just, just won't know that. Conversion won't come. But speaking of conversion, look at verse 36 to 38. We're going to see what takes place here. It says, then one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. So after this whole scene where Jesus is basically telling everyone, John the Baptist was right and true in what he said about me coming. Jesus was saying, I'm here. He was right. His ministry is a faithful ministry under the Lord. There were people that rejected that. And he says, hey, here's the deal. You should accept it. If you don't accept it, you're missing the will of God for your life. And I believe this Pharisee's in the crowd and he hears Jesus speaking. He hears Jesus teaching. And so he goes and invites Jesus back to his house. I think this is so cool because commentators are split. They say this Pharisee, who's named Simon, did he have something up his sleeve? Did he have a trick up his sleeve? Did he want to get Jesus into his house and do something to him and try to, you know, out, out maneuver him somehow and trick him? I don't know. We don't get anything in here. I do know that he's a proud dude. We see that in verse 44 here. He, he regards himself much higher than Jesus. But I think there's some level of honest challenge that entered into Simon's heart. He said, you know what? Jesus says that he's, he is the truth on all this. Come to, your, come to my house and we'll have a conversation about this. And you might say, where am I getting this from? Well, Matthew 11 is the cross-reference or the parallel passage to this section that happened right before. And Jesus concluded that section with Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. That's where Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, if that's how Jesus concluded that section, according to Matthew, even though Luke doesn't mention that, it's the same event. I believe that the Pharisee Simon says, man, I could go for some rest. I could go for a yoke that is easy, a burden that's light, because he's a Pharisee. He knows the law. He knows the weight of it. And he says, man, I have nothing to lose here. I'm going to challenge Jesus. I'm going to have him come to my house, and I'm going to investigate and see who he is. Now, again, I'm not arguing that this guy's not a proud man. We see that in here. But I believe there's some level of, of, of genuine intrigue. And I'll tell you tonight, if you're curious about Jesus, you say, I want to know about this peace. I want to know about the lightness of this yoke that he offers. I challenge you to challenge Jesus tonight. <laughs> I challenge you to ask Jesus tonight, say, show me, Lord, if you're where the peace is found, if you're where the life is found, if you're where grace and forgiveness is found, prove it to me tonight. He'll come and he'll meet you where you're at. And he'll show you that he is the, for, the one that forgives of sins. He is the only one that offers true rest. And so once inside, they're sitting there, they're having dinner, and we see this woman comes in. <laughs> really wild scene because they're laid out at this table, right? That's how they would eat back in the day. They'd kind of lean on one arm, they'd be laid out, and the feet of Jesus are behind him. And this woman comes in, and she starts, she's crying, and she's weeping, and she's washing Jesus' feet. And we might look at this and go, well, how did she get in there, right? Well, in this culture... That was a common practice. If you had important people gathering together, if they were all there to discuss something that was very lofty, the common people would go in to hear those conversations that they could grow, that they could learn. And that said, though, a woman in that culture was absolutely forbidden from eating with a rabbi like that. A woman of that, of that culture at that time could not go in and eat with, with the Pharisee and the rabbi. Also could not come and, and speak to a rabbi in the sense that she was a sinner, as it said in verse 37. And that word for sinner, it was a word that's used synonymously with tax collector. In other words, she's like of the most vile state in the eyes of the Jews and the Pharisees. What we believe from the text, from the original language, is that she's likely a prostitute that was known in the city. But this woman comes in because she knows that Jesus is there. And as she comes in, she's weeping and she's washing his feet again. 
you think about like, why is she weeping? I think there's two things. One, she's mourning her sin. She knows that she has the reputation of a sinner because she's lived that life. But secondly, you know, you get really excited and happy to rejoice over something. You tear up. I think she's rejoicing at the fact that, man, Jesus is here. I'm in his presence. The one that's forgiving me of all of those sins that I'm mourning. And she has fragrant oil. She's putting fragrant oil all over Jesus's feet. And it's a costly offering of affection and submission. Because you see, it says that it was in an alabaster flask. Alabaster was a very expensive stone. It looks like marble. And these flasks would usually be, be formed in a way to where you get the oil in there, you'd seal it. And the only way to get the oil out, you had to break that thing open. And it was like a one-time use. You break it open, you're pouring it all out. She decided that this is the moment that she was carrying that oil for. She said, the thing that I have that's most valuable to me, Jesus is worth it. I'm going to pour out everything that I have. And I mean, she takes her hair down. That's a huge deal in that culture. First Corinthians eleven fifteen 15 talked about how that hair, if a woman had long hair, it was her glory. She takes her hair down. She's pouring out her expensive oil. She's weeping tears, kissing the feet of Jesus and wiping it, wiping Jesus's feet with her hair. I mean, this is the definition of Psalm 51, 17. It says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. And so as she's doing all of this, she's pouring out all this adoration upon Jesus. Simon sitting at the table across from Jesus, doubting if he's even a prophet. Look at verse 39. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of who of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. So here's Simon. In his mind, he begins saying, this man, speaking of Jesus, if he were a prophet, he'd know what manner of woman this is that's touching him. She's a sinner. Right? So he's doubtful and degrading towards Jesus. And in this moment, Simon believes two things. He believes, one, that he's more righteous than the woman that's there. And he believes that he's more discerning than Jesus. This dude is just full of the pride of life. He thinks he's just smarter than everyone in the room, that he's better than Jesus. He's a proud man. And I think it's interesting because all he saw, he didn't see see this woman as anything other than her past sins. And his self-righteousness is so present in that moment. He's blinded by it, but he's focusing in on all this woman's past sins, her reputation, and he's blind to just the wonderful adoration and service that she's giving out unto Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been there, but you clean your life up in the sense where you come to Jesus and it's a true cleaning, it's sanctification. And people go, man, who are you to be serving Jesus? You used to do X, Y, and Z. You're still just a sinner. You're like, absolutely, I'm a sinner. That's why I'm here pouring out my tears and laying at the feet of Jesus, giving him everything that I have. But those people that accuse us of such things, they're proud and they're stubborn. And they say, I'm not going to trust in Jesus. I'm not going to weep at his feet. I'm not going to pour this costly oil upon him. And see, Jesus is seeing what's happening here. He says, this man, it's crazy because it says, like, Simon thought within himself. (laughs) And Jesus is hearing his thoughts. That's, That's enough to make me go, yeah, I think this guy's a prophet, right? But he proposes this wonderful parable to Simon that I believe is a parable to rebuke Simon. It's very clear, right? For his doubts towards Jesus and the, the blindness towards the beauty of the sacrifice the woman is giving to Jesus. So what Jesus does is he tells the story, right? Of two debtors. He says, look at both of these people in the story are needing forgiveness. They both have a huge debt. Uh, Denary was uh, one day's wages. So one owes 50 days wages, one owes 500 days wages. And neither one of them had the means to repay the creditor. So they were both in debt. One was, in, was more in debt, but they were both greatly in debt. And it would seem that the parable just fits this situation so perfectly. It just shows Jesus's mastery wisdom to say, I'm going to tell you a parable about two people that are both in debt. 
One may seem more in debt, but they both need forgiveness. And so Jesus tells him the story and asks Simon, hey, which one would love the creditor more? After he forgives both of them, the 500 denarii and the 50 denarii, which one would love them more? And I love it because Simon's so reluctant. He's like, uh, verse 43, right? He's like, um, I suppose the one who he forgave more. <laughs> like, of course, the one that's forgiven more is going to love the creditor more. Like the one that's forgiven greatly, man, they're going to respond greatly. And so Jesus is telling this to point out, man, Simon, you are right in this. You, you've answered correctly, but here's the problem. Your heart and your actions don't match your mouth. You say that, you know, you understand that you should love if you're forgiven. But since you're not loving right now, man, there's a problem here. The problem is that you're going to be convicted right now based on your statement that if you're not loving people, man, you're not forgiven. <laughs> and it's proven, right? Look at what Jesus does here when he applies the story. Verse 44, he says, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in, since I came into your house. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And so I love this because right off the bat, Jesus in verse 44, he says, do you see this woman? He didn't say, hey, Simon, do you see this filthy sinner? Do you see this filthy prostitute? And Jesus says, look, Jesus is aware of these things. But he's also aware of the fact that she's pouring out her adoration and her love upon Jesus because of who he is. She's mourning her sin. She's rejoicing in Jesus. He says, I see a woman. <laughs> it's so awesome because Simon saw a sinner and a prostitute, but Jesus saw a woman. And so in this point, Simon, in his pride, he didn't even greet Jesus with like some water to wash his feet, right? Like not that Simon would do it, but just common practice would be, hey, you came in from the dirty roads in your open sandals. Here's some water to just wash, wash off all the dirt. Or to greet him with that holy kiss, maybe the, 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 the customary kiss on the cheek, which was common in their culture. It's still common today. But in this case, no kiss, no water. He says, and Look, at you've, you've done none of these things. You didn't even give me a drop of oil on my head. That would be like a perfume. It would be like you essential people out there, right? All your essential oils. You love your, your, your peppermint or your, uh, I don't know, your thieves or whatever oil you use. And, you know, you like the way it smells. In their culture, they would have oil and they'd give you a drop on your head. It would help you smell good because you just walk through like a desert to get to someone's house for dinner. You kind of stink. Your feet are all dirty. You need all this stuff to be taken care of so you can sit down and have a good dinner. Simon did none of that for Jesus. And see, the fact that he didn't do that meant that he didn't regard Jesus as anything special. He actually regarded Jesus less than a common person to come into their house. That's how we know that this guy's proud. Again, I believe he was genuine in wanting to sit down and have a conversation with Jesus. But man, his pride just blinded him, I believe, from getting what was happening and who was sitting in front of him. And see, this woman, she just defines poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. She comes in here, and she is a sinner, but she is grateful for her Savior. You have Simon, who's absolutely a sinner, but he has no awareness that he needs the doctor. He needs the great physician. He needs Jesus's forgiveness. And so in verse 47, you see, Jesus drove the point home here. Simon's actions declared plainly that he both thought himself better than Jesus and was in no need of forgiveness. And that's why Jesus says, look at, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Simon, your lack of love has conveyed that you've been forgiven little. You have a lack of forgiveness because you clearly have a lack of love. <laughs> and the contrast between Simon and the woman who knew that she was a sinner, but came to Jesus for forgiveness. Man, it's so night and day different. And Simon's a Pharisee. He's supposed to be the guy that knows the Bible, that knows the law. Here's this woman who's a prostitute, who's a sinner. And she comes in and she's just at the feet of Jesus, just worshiping him. 
And I love that Psalm 126.5 says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. But woe to you who laugh now, right? The idea is Simon's sitting there thinking, I got everything I made, I'm sufficient. This woman says, man, I need Jesus. <laughs> I need forgiveness. And I love it because in verse 48 through 50, where we end tonight, Jesus assures the woman's sins are forgiven by her faith. Look at what it says here in verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Man, this is wonderful. Because I don't know about you guys, but I read this passage and there's times, man, where, where in, my, in my own pride, I'm more like Simon. But man, when I get humbled, because <laughs> man, pride, right? It comes before a fall, haughty spirit before destruction. And when we're walking in those, those attitudes, something happens and man, the Lord just humbles us. And if we have the right spirit about us, we come like this woman, we show up and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Lord, thank you for, my, for, for your forgiveness. And the fact that she's there, it shows us a couple things. She broke all of those cultural norms. Again, she shouldn't have been in this house with the Pharisees. She shouldn't have been in this house as this prostitute, right? Everyone would have outcasted her. But she's had the courage to go in because she heard that Jesus was there. And when she got there, she poured out all this fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her tears and hair. It shows that she doesn't believe that Jesus is just some man. He's not just a carpenter's, you know, carpenter's son. He's not um, some phony. He's the real deal. She must have known. I believe she heard Matthew 11, 28 to 30 as well. And she believed it and she knew it. And she experienced forgiveness probably for the first time. That true forgiveness. And she's there just saying, man, I, I heard Jesus' words. Now I'm going to go to him and I'm going to just worship him at his feet. And while she's there doing that, Jesus turns and looks at her. And I love it because Jesus had already said that her sins were forgiven in verse 47. But here in 48, Jesus looks directly at her and says, you, your sins are forgiven you. Like what a blessing. You guys have known this. If you believed and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know that moment where you realize that you were forgiven and that weight was lifted off of your shoulders. That yoke and that burden that is Jesus is light and it's easy. You yoke up with him and you're forgiven because he did all the work. When you put your faith in his atoning work of the cross and his, the power of his resurrection that declared him to be the son of God, according to Romans 1, 4, we then know that, man, this is real and I'm forgiven and it's such a blessing. But meanwhile, across the table, man, there's these guys that are sitting there and they're like, who is this guy that thinks he forgives the sins? <laughs> who is this dude? He's crazy, right? They're, they're, they're questioning Instead of accepting him, he just showed such mastery wisdom at this table. Remember, the reputation of Jesus has already been put out there, that he's going around healing blind people and healing deaf people, raising a widow's son from dead, healing a centurion servant from long distance, and yet these men still won't believe because he doesn't fit their box. He doesn't fit their agenda. They say, who is this guy that thinks he can forgive sins? If only they had taken a full understanding of the book of Malachi, if only they understood Zechariah and Daniel and all these different things, they would understand that Jesus was there fulfilling so much messianic scripture, fulfilling Isaiah, fulfilling all of these things. <laughs> but instead they said, man, we don't like how this guy looks. We don't like how he talks. We don't like John the Baptist. We don't like any of this. Therefore, we're going to dismiss it. And because of that, they're left in their unbelief while Jesus tells this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, this is the key. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith. That That's not of ourselves. It's the work of God. It's a gift of God. And so the fact that we know that Jesus is giving this woman forgiveness, it's not because of her work. It's because of her faith. And he says that. He says, your faith has saved you. You see, Jesus said in John 5, 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death and into life. This woman, because she put her faith in Jesus Christ, she has peace with God. Romans 5, 1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Romans 5, 1 and 2 tells us that this woman is living it. She's able to leave and walk out in peace because her faith has been placed in Jesus Christ. Tonight, if your faith is not placed in Jesus Christ, you won't know the peace. The peace that comes in Jesus Christ that passes all understanding. The peace that you need to get through this life and not just get through this life, but to actually strive in this life and to enter eternity with Jesus Christ and not separate it into eternal punishment as Matthew 25 and 20, uh, 41 and Matthew 25, 46 talks about. Jesus himself said in John 3, 36, he who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who does not believe the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And see those men at the table that said, man, I don't, I don't know about this Jesus. Who is he to forgive sins? I don't believe in him. They were sitting there with the wrath of God still sitting on their account. Still sitting there. They were in debt to a creditor. The creditor is God. The judge is Jesus Christ. And this woman who had that at one time had sins that deserved wrath of God, right? It tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, it's a free gift to us because Jesus has done the work. But when we put our faith in his work, we can be saved by that grace. Today is the day of salvation. Where are you tonight? If you don't have that rest in Jesus Christ, if you don't have that peace in Jesus Christ, if you don't know where you were to go tonight, if you were to take your last breath here on earth, where would you be? Because it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, I believe it is, that to be absent from the body for the believers to be present with the Lord. But you do not have any of that security without Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us you're separated from Jesus Christ. I pray that for none of you out there. I pray that tonight would be the day that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ fully and wholly and completely. Come to Jesus tonight as someone that says, man, I need the forgiveness of my sins. I do have a reputation as a sinner because I am a sinner and I acknowledge that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. But if you say, I don't need Jesus, I don't need saving. Jesus says, man, depart from me, you curse. I never knew you. And you do not want that. I don't want that for you. So today is the day to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Come humbly and the Lord will exalt you. The Lord Jesus exalted John the Baptist because he continued strong in the ministry given to him by the Lord. My brothers and sisters that are serving the Lord tonight, continue to serve him faithfully. You will be exalted in due time. In the kingdom, you will see Jesus face to face. And that's the excitement that we have. By grace and by faith, we have been saved. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now, Lord, and we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for, Lord, just the opportunity that we have to open your word, that you sustained your word and that you speak to your word through the power of your spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your willingness to speak to us, to bring us in, Lord Jesus, for your work upon the cross. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone that may be online that doesn't know you, if they want to know you tonight, it begins with just this statement, this prayer of faith that they would confess their mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. I pray that right now, if anyone's online listening and they want to put their trust in you, that they would begin with this simple prayer. They could you could repeat it right after me if this is you. You would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.